Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Today on the show, we have Steve Gledel. Steve is the global head of digital product and user experience for the one and only Costa Coffee. In this episode, we talk all about what that role involves and how that enables him to take real life user issues and build products out of them. We also talk about how COVID affected their global reach and some interesting innovations that came from the pandemic. Finally, we speak about Steve's healthy career in digital product and as global head of digital product at Costa, what new ideas he can bring to the team. New ideas to Costa, I mean. This was all recorded before the European finals, so stay tuned for some foreshadowing predictions on that one. That and much, much more on this week's episode of That Tech Show. Here is Steve Gledel. I'm Steve Gledel. I uh, head up digital products and user experience for Costa Coffee globally. Been in digital products now for you know over ten years, so um, well uh, you know scored in terms of uh, all the transformations that it's been through over the years. But yeah, um, that's currently what I'm doing at the moment. So yeah, looking after design as well is a is a new thing for me. So that's really interesting. So that, that's me. So global global head of product and did or global head of digital products and user experience is that right? Yes, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So, and design. So design is what comes under the user experience, then, is it? Yeah. So user experience and and, and design and and all the elements of the consumer experience um, for, for Costa essentially. So digital products is almost blended in terms of you know we've got customer experience managers who manage the whole of the the the, the state for Costa. So um, a few other things that fall under that, such as CMS and and things like that. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a broad role, but it's obviously big and exciting. So, what sort of um, what sort of products are we talking? Because obviously, for any we we actually have people all around the globe, and actually, well, actually, let's let's start there. Costa is a UK brand, um, but it's how how many countries and around the world are you in? Well, it's. It's in many countries, and so we've got presence across across the world. Um, but the the kind of the global growth is is continuing. So you know we're we're, we're obviously massive in in the UK. We've got greenfield markets where a digital footprint isn't as as high as obviously the UK. And then we've got you know the the, the mid tier markets where they're they're mature enough to have consumers and data and things like that, but they're not as mature as the UK in terms of the products and the offerings that they have. But Answering the first question in terms of what are the digital products, I mean, it's 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 everything that a consumer uses, I guess, to 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 purchase a coffee. So that may be e-commerce through our you know we uh, through our e-commerce arm. It may be you know the mobile app to to scan and earn points. It may be you know um, click and collect, ordering a coffee, things like that. So the product team is 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 very much spread out across the channels in which a consumer engages through. So you've got, you know, your, your, your platform channels, which are machines, your, your retail, your store, things like that. Then you've got your devices, such as your mobile app, your website, and, and things like that. Because I guess people might think that there's not not much in terms of digital product for a coffee shop. But you, you're right, like, you know, the machines as well, the machines are everywhere, aren't they? In, in yeah. service stations up and down the country and I presume around the globe as well. I, I did do a little bit of research and uh, found on Wikipedia, you can correct me whether this is right or wrong, uh, but on Wikipedia it said, as of September 2018, Costa Coffee was available in three continents in 32 countries with 3,883 locations, which astonished me <laughs> yeah it's probably grown a, a little bit more since since then as well i mean it's it's crazy when you think about it so 
if you think about, um, you, you know, you mentioned buying a coffee on, on, on a machine, the quality of the coffee is on par with what you get in, in a store in a retail environment. And what we've been trying to do, obviously through COVID, is ensure that our consumers can continue to enjoy their coffee in a safe, hygienic way. So we've done things like adopted and released contactless ordering. So you can actually order your coffee by connecting your phone to the machine. Oh, wow. And actually doing it through your mobile app. So What, so that you actually don't have to touch the screen? Don't have to touch the screen. So the menu is replicated onto your mobile device. Wow. You then choose your coffee, and then you press dispense on, on, the, mobile, on the mobile app. So without, the only thing you have to touch is the cup. That must be pretty satisfying to use. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was one of those things which, you know, we came up with as, as, as a concept at the start of everything changing in the world. Mm. Obviously, you know, accelerated it and then released it last year. So it's it's popular, it's good, and it's satisfying from a product point of view because it's actually taken a real-life problem and it's actually yeah, creating yeah. a solution for it and seeing people use it and then optimizing it and making it even. Was that something that you had an idea for before this or, or, was, it, or, or was, it, was it actually the pandemic that triggered the, you to be able to come up with that concept? Well, it's a little bit of both. So we've always had a product backlog, which has always been kind of like things around getting coffee to consumers faster and allowing them to engage with technologies such as a mobile app so that we can communicate with them in their pocket, doing things that are um, industry first. We've always wanted to do stuff like that. So it's something that was definitely on the plan, but mm. accelerated and iterated into this contactless ordering feature as a part of the COVID pandemic. And, and what have there been other things that you've been able to do off the back of the pandemic that have, have been triggered by that? How do we, how do we deliver a, a better contactless experience because you were mentioning click and collect and i don't think i've i don't think i've come across that before yeah so i mean click and collect was you know something that we developed um and, you know we've got a, a really strong propositions team who look after our click and collect and delivery um service you know through our delivery aggregators and partners working tirelessly with with, with my team in terms of iterating it to a product so when we started Click and Collect, it was four drinks, 16 stores on the mobile app, only mm. available to certain consumers in a certain area. So geo, you know, tagged and ring fenced so that only certain consumers could use it. We optimized it and iterated it to this kind of like full menu, full-blown proposition, which is now available in all of our estates. So wow. it, it, it grew. And obviously with the pandemic and with the great teams that we've got in, in, in the UK, et cetera, we've been able to drive that and actually increase you know, the, the penetration of, of, of usage of that to, to consumers. When we weren't allowed in stores or we weren't allowed to eat in, it's been a blessing. It's been something that has able, been able um, for consumers to be able to use and be in and out. And you know, like we said, that element of speed is important mm. and it's important now more than ever. Considering that you, had the, you, you do have those sort of contactless um, vending kiosk type machines that we've just mm. been talking about, I don't really know. How do you refer to them internally? Costa Express. Costa Express. You just you're by the brand. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's self-serve, so we, we, we split between served and self-serve. Right, okay, okay, okay. Um, so when, you went, when we went into the pandemic, everything started locking down. Was that quite a, did that have quite an impact on Costa being you know, a physical location largely? Or were you propped up by that, uh, by Costa Express? It's, it's a little bit of both, right? So in, in some areas, we're still able to trade, still able to use things like click and collect, but definitely, you know, allowing 
if you remember the first lockdown where mm. you were only allowed out for an hour a day and people weren't supposed to go anywhere and it was kind of like and it sounds really like um draconian now it sounds like yeah. it's it's a really like it's it's a charlie brooker kind of like you know a series on, on on netflix or something but that did happen we were only allowed out for an hour a day and you would get stopped by the police and they would ask you and they would question you but for key workers you know being able to get about and still enjoy you know a really ha- great handcrafted cup of coffee and if they can't enjoy a handcrafted cup of coffee being able to get it from a machine which gives you the same quality was, was great. And it was greatly appreciated as well for those, for those people who you forget in the challenges that we've been through in terms of a pandemic, the little luxuries that people enjoy. So you'll see videos on the internet of people as soon as the McDonald's were able to open, as soon as the cost roads were open, mm. queuing up and down the roads because that is their little moment of, you know, I'm getting back to normal a little bit. This is my moment of pleasure. So it, we were fortunate that we've got elements of, of the business that we're able to still still trade. So, did, okay. So, I mean, as a as a, the global head of product, I expect you to have this level of passion for coffee. But did you always have a passion for coffee, or did you find it through the job? I'm curious. So, I've got a big coffee machine in the background. I don't know if you can see it, but I've got like a sage coffee machine. I and I've got like big bags of of, of, of coffee beans that I get from from all over. I'm I'm, I'm a massive coffee fan it fuels me and i think to myself if something's going to fuel me it best tastes good so i'm <laughs> big in terms of making sure that um i have the best coffee that suits my taste palette and it was refreshing to go from brands i'd worked for before which was like mm. british gas talk talk yeah. very utility based very necessity people don't like us because we charge them for the things they need and therefore you've got Utility. a lot of, yeah. yeah, you go to a party, you sit down at a dinner table, you speak to people and you say, I work for British Gas, I've had a negative experience because my bill or something like that, right? Which is not necessarily our fault, but it's just the perception. Yeah, yeah. And then you sit down at a table and you tell people you work for Costa. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I love the flat white or I love the honeycomb, you know, flavor that you do. Are you going to bring back the spiced apple at Christmas? And it's always a really positive <laughs> kind of, not necessarily related to your area, but it's always positive uh, sentiment from, from from people you speak to. So although coffee wasn't my kind of what football is to me, like in terms of my passion, I enjoy it. And I love working for a brand that is very much well received with, with, with people. When you left Talk Talk looking for this for this job, was it because it was coffee? Was that was or was it? You know, how how did that come about? Because I'm, what I'm really curious and what I want to get at is you've done product management uh, at various different levels for a variety of different organizations. How do you find a passion for product management in the organizations you work for? Because, you know, to, to your point, British Gas, Talk Talk, um, very, very different um, sort of products, really. So you, you've got to find a passion for gas and boilers and <laughs> all that sort of stuff versus a passion for coffee. And I know for me, which one I'd find easier. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 weird, right? So, I took the job at Costa because um, my old boss and my old mentor and someone I greatly respect was had had recently joined, and sold me the kind of package which was, you know, Costa doesn't really have too much in terms of a digital presence. It's looking to transform completely. It outsources. A little bit like what we discovered when we first went into Total, right? It outsourced mm. a lot. It had a lot of challenges around technology. 
and it wanted to move into this it, it wanted to be a digital player it wanted to look at starbucks and nero and, and now mcdonald's and say right okay well we're going to have a piece of that in terms of getting consumers to engage digitally getting consumers to transact digitally and build a digital portfolio so it really excited me the fact that i was going into somewhere where it was a bit of a blank sheet of paper mm. it had a team already which were doing an, an excellent job in terms of developing the product but it was kind of like okay well how do we take that and how do we build it to the next stage and it was very centered around the mobile app to begin with then it it got broader and started feeding in things like the website then it started feeding in things like the cms and then it was like okay right we want user experience and design and it's always been a piece of like learning it's always been something else that you take under your wing and it's always been something else that you you know you, you get into and for me the pull of pr products isn't necessarily the thing you sell it's the psychology behind the thing you sell which i find interesting it's what makes the consumer tick what habits do they build and create around your product how do you get someone to do something based on the activity that you you create and how do you drive them to a certain thing and costa's got a great reach and, and TalkTalk had a great reach and british gas had a great reach so and i've worked for brands before as well which have great reaches and it's 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 amazing when you see your products being used by millions mm. of people mm. and you see the improvements that you're making as a result of the changes that you that you develop i think costa as well in terms of we've worked for big companies and they've all got big systems and they've all got legacy and they've all got a lot of um challenges around digital transformation costa was completely new it was building a new crm it was mm. building a new front end it was building a new middle layer so it was like almost the case of i don't really have those challenges that i'd have if i went in and did a, a bss or a sap or those kind of migrations i didn't have any of that to, 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 to kind of worry about these are just big back-end platforms for the listeners who might not know what BSS is. <laughs> so nothing to do, not, not, nothing wrong with those. It was just a case of they exist. And if you're looking to migrate from, you know, legacy systems and you're looking to... Yeah, cumbersome things that take a long time to release and a long time to get product out to the consumer. And, you know, they're, they're frustrating to work on. Um, but obviously you've been through some of those transformations. We've talked about on, on this show with other guests, the... the um, the, the transformation that we went through with Talk Talk from being able to do what about two releases a month to yeah I was actually told the other day that the at the peak after after I'd left and presumably after you'd left as well um, they hit eighty four releases a month which was pretty incredible um, for for that team I remember you I remember you joining Talk Talk and I think you joined around the same time as me and you used to sit on that middle island mm. in in the thing and just like observe and see what's going on. And I remember the first conversation that, that we had and it was almost like, because I'd come in from doing a transformation of British Gas, so I was yeah, well yeah. versed in terms of how things should work and obviously that's your background. And I remember we had a conversation, it was almost like, what are they doing over there? And it was like, they're having a stand-up, but it was a stand-up to them was a kind of thing that you had to do. There was no value in, in the stand-up. No, it was just no. everyone got in a circle <laughs> and there was about 50 people having a stand-up. We were just like having a little bit of a chuckle about it. it but like, they weren't actually talking about anything that was relevant. I think they were just they just stood up for 10 minutes. And, yeah. and I mean, taking that on a journey from this kind of two release a month thing, which is deeply frustrating for people like me who want to see change and want to work in a bit more of an agile way and taking it to, you know, the number of releases that you said a month it's it's amazing and 
it's rewarding as well. It, it, mm. It's great to see your work out there. And we all know about things like escalation of commitment and investing in things and developing things for two years and not seeing any output from it versus putting things out gradually and, and, and what they can build. Well, I mean, that's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? But so, uh, you know, from a, from a blank slate that, you know, Costa was, mm. how did you... How did you set that up from the beginning to, to make sure, you know, how, how, how quickly are you able to churn out product now? I mean, you, you talked about, you know, being able to roll out some of that fe- those features and functionality at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, how, quick, how, how quickly can you get an idea in front of a customer? It's, uh, yeah, in, in a matter of hours, days on the website, um, really? our, wow. our, um, our app's a bit different because... Obviously, we have to go through the Google, Apple approvals, and we have submissions to go through, and things, yeah, yeah, submissions and all that kind of stuff. So we tend to do one release a month, mm. which I think is quite good for a mobile, for a mobile app. It keeps it fresh. Um, sometimes we'll do more than that, depending on what the what the actual project is. But we tend to try to keep it to one release a month. What we don't want to do is release too often, so that consumers don't download the latest version because they think, well, what's the point? What's the difference? We want to give them some value, and also we want to make sure that. We're not impacting any of the other projects which may be on that build. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I presume then from being on a, a monthly release cycle, then that is a purely native app that you've decided to go for then rather than a hybrid. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So in terms of, but in terms of on the website then, so the, um, how did you, how, how did you go about setting this up? What, what things did you have to put in place for other people listening that might be about to go through a digital transformation? What do you need to have in place to make sure that a team is able to move that quickly to be able to deliver product that quickly? And, and what feedback mechanisms do you need to have to make sure that it works? Yeah, so I think the structure needs to be there. So you need to have the people, you need to have the, the, the squad, you need to have the people that can build it, the product feeding into it, the designers. You need to have an idea of what it is you want to build, but also you need to have a good good infrastructure. So you need to create a, a, a list of the things which you want to update often and that can potentially change and build them into your CMS and have your CMS wrapped around that so that you can make content changes. For example, um, we touched on it earlier around COVID. We were doing updates to consumers to let them know about store openings, to let them know about the latest government information, to share home recipes and stuff. And we were doing that often, and we were able to do that because these pages were static, were built in our in, in our content management system. Then we had the things which sat behind that, such as you know, log into your to your account and, and the things which require data points and things like that. So I think for me, it's just about identifying the things which you want to be able to change quickly and the things which don't change as often, and then technologies and the complexities around that. So just really understanding what your website is going to be for. So, you know, the strategy behind it, do you have an e-commerce website, which is all around driving traffic and converting? Do you have a brochure website, which is all around giving consumers information? And if both figure out where they sit in terms of that. We did quite a bit of um, work on our website to begin with. So we worked out the information architecture, mm-hmm. what we wanted to do, and that's basically the sorting of, of where things live in, in, in the website. So what we wanted to do was understand where the pain points were from a consumer point of view with the data that we had. So taking out the dead ends, looking at where consumers go after they get help, looking if consumers come back after they've visited us for the first time, et cetera. What's the kind of like um, exit rate and bounce rate and things like that. Did a lot of card sorting, worked with an agency, had our in-house design and UX team work on the card sorting to figure out and work with consumers where things should live. So what do you mean by card sorting? Let's unpack that a little bit. So 
if you look at your um, if you look at your architecture of your website and you look at the hierarchy of the website, mm-hmm. so you know, does it make sense for certain areas of your website to live in in in, in these defined almost super super areas? So if you've got like I don't know a homepage and then you've got an about us and then you've got a e-commerce section or you've got help or you've got contacts, just really figuring out if you've got a lot of content where those things live and where it's intuitive to a consumer to naturally go and find that information and how do you kind of interconnect those pages together so that's so sort of navigating through the sitemap then and figuring out yeah. what those journeys are i suppose yeah defining what you think the sitemap should be from a top line point of view making sure that those um topics resonate well with consumers do they understand what they mean and then the content that you have getting them to sort that into the little um, verticals of, of, of the website and so then it's the management of things like the bounce rate that you were talking about that you, you're then checking to see whether things worked or not, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, if you get in half a million visits per week to your website, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Are they finding what they need and leaving? If so, that's fine. But are they getting frustrated and leaving? How do you track that? How do you build in through your heat maps and things like that to understand actually what a consumer gets out of your website? What's the dwell time on the page, mm. all that kind of stuff. Well, how, how do you determine that then? How do you determine whether a, a customer is getting what they want or not? So there's a number of things that you can do. So you can have a you know, heat map in to see where a consumer's cursor is on, on, on the website to see if they go into the page and then immediately click off. It could be things like they found what they need, so then they go back. It could be that they're struggling, so they're navigating around and then they leave. So there's a number of things in which we tend to look at in terms of um, a consumer. Sometimes it might be if they land on your page from search or from an email or from you know whatever other means of entry, and then they leave straight away. You can determine that if they've only been there for two seconds, they've probably haven't got what they need. They probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. They were exploring. <laughs> Whereas if you get someone who lands on your page and they've been navigating around and then they leave without actually getting to the part where you mm. think. So it's de- I guess it's determining what your success path is. So if you look at the paths of the, the, the website and where you want a consumer to eventually end up, understanding do they get there? If not, where do they fall out and, mm. and, and that kind of piece. But it's interesting. I think if you're going to invest in a website, invest in a good session replay tool, look at what consumers are doing and play it back and really mm. understand the journey that they're taking. And it will do things that you'll just think, because we look at a screen every single day. I look at the Costa app and the Costa website probably a million times more than any other person does because who's looking at the Costa website unless you want something from Costa. So <laughs> by watching somebody interact with our mobile app or with our website, it helps me understand a little bit more the, the, the behavior. Then I can go into the analytics and I can go, actually, I saw from a sample of data that people are doing this. Is everyone doing that? Or is it just the kind of confusion between a certain demographic? And then you can kind of get your trends and then you can start to see what's happening and make those optimizations and iterations. I think you'll always have assumptions. and You'll always have things which you just think to yourself, I need to change this because it's not right. But always try and back it up if you can by using those tools that are at your disposal. And, and if you haven't got them, invest in them because they are they're critical. They, they, they will help you. And do you um, do you actually do like live user testing as well of actually sitting people down and going through stuff? Yes, we use a remote uh, user testing software and everything we do, no matter how small it is, no matter how big it is, we use a test. I remember um, when we were at Talk Talk, it would be even be, you know, we're on the second floor, run downstairs to the canteen, put it in front of people while they're having their, you know, their, <laughs> their lunch or whatever and say, 
try and figure this out or give them a you know a prototype and 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 work with it i think even if you just put it in front of a few people where there's a scientific study that says you know you only really need five people to go through a journey to be able to give you a conclusive answer because the rest of the answers will be pretty much the same as what you discover with those five people through a user journey and user testing. so i think for me being user-led being data-led is, is important let the data drive the kind of roadmap and, and the backlog and, and use that data to set that any experience that you put out put it in front of consumers let them play with it let them tell you that's the right thing even if it's you know, this is brilliant let them do that copy changes word changes you might interpret something in a totally different way to how i interpret mm. it you might think you know click here is the greatest thing in the world and you want to go be really prescriptive with a call to action whereas some people might just be able to get it because it's intuitive that that's an action point i hear a lot around um old school thinking of we need a click here button because people won't be able to you know understand that it's a click here button whereas you're like well it's fairly intuitive if the call to action is submit your details so i mean it's like (laughs) have it a bit more conversational rather than being direct click here that kind of thing and Mm. if you can prove consumers get it then you'll take the business on the journey with you so there's no plan to bring back scrolling marquees and things from the 90s then (laughs) yeah (laughs) background music on websites oh yeah yeah, GIFs. More animated GIFs, please. Oh, yeah, um, I love it. <laughs> With that, right, how, how do you, or, you know, how do you choose to balance business needs versus user needs? Because obviously the business needs to move forward and they're going to have a whole bunch of their own um, milestones that they want to hit, but then you've also got unhappy users, potentially unhappy users. How do you go about balancing them? I think in a really good business, they go hand in hand because one drives the other, right? So I think... Mm-hmm. If you've got a business where they're saying, we need this, and they give you a really specific product that you need to build, that's not giving the team autonomy and that's not creating a growth mindset. I'm lucky that in the businesses I've worked in, it's always been a bit of a kind of, we'll give you a problem statement and the problem statement is X. And what we want to do is we want to grow by Y or we want to do this. And then it's kind of like the freedom to be able to create the products, the experience that drives that. And you'll have stakeholder reviews and you'll have sprint demos and you'll have all these kind of things where you take time to take people on the journey. We, we tend to, with everything we, we, we develop, um, especially the big ticket items, we'll kick off by having an ideation. And that ideation is a chance for us to get people from all over the business, subject matter experts from finance, commercial, um, IT, digital, and just basically get in a room and say, okay, this is what we're thinking in terms of the idea. What's the problem statement? Map out what you think the experience is. What you draw it, right? Have a, have a go. And what we'll do then is have a bit of a kind of exercise where we'll we'll talk through all of our all of our ideas. And then we'll have a bit of a dot voting exercise where we'll give everyone three dots and you can dot on the themes or the concepts which you think are the most, you know, which you think will be the most successful or the things that you like the best. Then at the end of it, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go through and say, right, okay, these were the winners. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take that to user testing to make sure that users get it. That not only creates a kind of cross-functionality with the rest of the business and makes people feel like they're engaged, they are actually engaged and they're shaping it. So it's not a sense of you develop something or you build something and then three weeks later, someone comes down the line and says, well, actually, I like the color red or I, like, I think that call to action <laughs> should be at the top of the page. It's like, well, we've all been on the journey together and then obviously taking people 
through the various ceremonies that we have as part of our agile ways of working and making sure that people can see stuff. If you're the cleaner, the office manager, the person who's in charge, the CEO or whatever, walk by, put a post on the note on the wall and just tell us what you think in terms of the experience. Have, have a little bit of time to engage because when you work with products, you get a blend of people and that's what you need. You need good coverage. Uh, yeah, I love a bit of dot voting and writing on walls. I remember when we first started doing that in Talk Talk, the, uh, the, they all went ballistic. <laughs> yeah, when we took over that room and they said, what, what are they doing running around with post-it notes? Oh, well, we're over the bat like, uh, what? <laughs> yeah, we really changed. I think we really changed things there because they were, they were very upset about us writing on the walls and writing on the windows. And um, and ultimately, it, it sort of took over in the end. But that's how you develop a great product. And that dot voting, I think, is a, I, I think that's key. I mean, I've used that in retrospectives and things like that for years because it's a simple way of getting a you know a straw poll. It's engagement, and it's I, I hate this kind of like hierarchical view of like, well, I own the product; it's mine. No one else can touch it. I'm precious. It's it's mine. I've got the best. I'm happy to go in a room and somebody have a better idea than me because mm. that helps me shape the product. And I'm not saying that I've got all the best ideas because I haven't, but there's somebody who's working in a different function to the business who is closer to the end user than what I am, who has all of the data and has all of the information, who can bring that into the room, really design something. They don't need to be you know, Michelangelo in terms of their, their drawings. They can just write in a box if they want to. We've got a design team that can you know, uh, flesh that out and build the UI around it. It's, it's just getting those ideas and getting them out of people in, in, in a room, which I think is really hugely beneficial to product development. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, you know, where do ideas come from? But, uh, you know, and I think it's great that you've, you've, you've basically already answered that question, especially that it doesn't come from you as a person, but it comes from you you're facilitating a way for, for that idea to come from everybody. Yeah, it's almost like if you think of a sales funnel, I'll let people throw things in and we've got an open backlog on, on, on our Jira board, right, which is I mean, people can have an idea. The part I play in that is the prioritization and making sure that we're releasing value as soon as we possibly can and we're not building all of the complex things to begin with and then not releasing any value to consumers. What we want to do is we want to create a roadmap which allows us to have those smaller releases more often so that consumers can see value. So the job there is working with our development team and our development leads and our head of engineering to be able to create that plan so that there is a value exchange and got that value chain set up. But ideas can come from anywhere and the best ideas often come from areas of the business which you wouldn't even imagine. Mm. I mean, you you spoke about, um, uh, you know, this being relatively greenfield when you started. Did you did you have to convince people that this was the right way to work or were you just given the freedom to actually do this? Well, when I joined, there was always there, there was already a, 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 a two or three people in the team who were really strong in their areas, digitally savvy, and had already done a lot of the convincing for me. So they'd already been on the journey in terms of, right, we need a transformation. We need to move to a new CRM platform. We need to invest in building a team in-house versus it being an outsourced team. So all that kind of people had already been taken on the journey. The convincing that we had to do was around building minimum viable products, breaking things down into smaller iterations because everybody still had this kind of agency mindset of, I'll write you a one-pager, go away and build it, come back to me in six weeks when it's built, and then we'll release it. Changing it to that mindset of, right, okay, this is what we want to do or what we think we want to do. Let's release things, and that's that those releases tell us as we go along whether it's the right thing or not, and also allow us to give stuff to consumers sooner 
Um, so my job was less about the kind of convincing them that we needed to do something. It was more around the kind of MVP isn't minimum viable, minimum viable product isn't us being half-assed and going, well, we can't do it. It's getting something out the door sooner so that we mm -hmm. can release that value, like I said. So working really closely with our head of engineering, who's super talented guy and had been on this journey with various people in, 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 in the digital team. And I just came in and kind of took all the glory, built, built the roadmap and uh, yeah, released it <laughs> <off. laughs> Nice, nice. I think um, I was going to make a football reference then, but it's it's very shaky for me to try and make a football reference. <laughs> I was like the Gaza in Scotland. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I was going to say Gary Lineker. I just realised how, how old I was dating myself as, as being then. Uh, he was known for being a glory stealer, wasn't he? Obviously, this is appropriate because this will go out after the Euro finals. So uh, When it comes home. When it comes home. <laughs> <laughs> I only found out the other day that football was happening because I was outside in the garden. I could hear cheering. <laughs> My daughter's four and I keep saying to her, it's coming home, it's coming home. And I said to her this morning, um, what, what, what's going to happen to football? She said, it's going to come home. I said, great. And she said, but what happens if you're not in? Would I leave it at the door? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, don't leave it at the door. Don't put a card in the data box. <laughs> what a Royal Mail attempted delivery. We tried to deliver football to you, but you weren't in. Yeah, we've left it next door. <laughs> That's fantastic. In a safe place. <laughs> Behind the bins. Behind the bins, yeah. With... Um... With with the kind of ways of working you brought in, and I'm just playing catch up with what you guys are talking about. So again, sorry if you've already covered this. Did it take? Is there anything that you've done or brought into play that was a bit like, oh, a bit closer, or they were worried about, or you know, was there a lot of? I don't want to use the word convincing because that's exactly what uh, Chris said. Is it more just? Did you, have you encountered any kind of friction or anything like that with certain ways that you've had to keep going? Keep going on with and then and then just having them deal with it or whatever no it's just this like i said before it's this it, it was this element of breaking things down into smaller pieces i mentioned to chris mm. at, at the start you know for our click and collect proposition we did an mvp which was you know four drinks to 16 stores and it was almost like a kind of right okay so what get to the next stage and you know we want it to be a kind of the end proposition and we went from a period of people showing the North Star vision on a page and selling that in and then us building an MVP, which was obviously way off of the North Star vision because that's what an MVP is. Mm -hmm. And then them coming back to us and saying, well, hang on a minute, that ain't this, that's rubbish. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of getting them away from that mindset of, well, it's not rubbish, it's a journey to get towards this mm -hmm. because this might not be right, but at least we'll know by releasing stuff and at least we'll learn and at least consumers have got something versus what they've got today, which is nothing. So it was mm -hmm. that convincing that took, took, took a bit of time. I think as the role has become more global, the convincing now is more around stop using white labels, stop using really tactical products and technologies and start thinking about onboarding onto a more global platform. It may be a bit of a longer journey in terms of you getting the functionality you get with a white label but i can guarantee you by the end of it it will be far superior and you'll you'll benefit from all of the things that you know you get from a global platform such as the commonalities and technologies and things like that so yeah. that's the journey that we're on at the moment in terms of the convincing job um but it's exciting and it's always good to talk about it in in, in meetings and mm. 
not everyone's digitally savvy so you have to break it down into analogies and things like that which are a, a bit less complex than talking about technology stacks but i think the benefits are clear in terms of efficiencies speed eventualities and stuff like that and of, of, of having that stuff so I suppose it's those small wins, isn't it? It's being able to demonstrate, you know, having a small win and seeing how, uh, how, how that whether you're actually getting the feedback that you were expecting, and then I think it builds up over time. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way of putting it, right? Because we used to, we used to have product councils. We, we still do our product councils at, at, at Costa, where we're bringing people from all over the, the the world who have a vested interest in digital. And my old boss used to always start it with runs on the board. So every single month we'll have a you know a session, but we'll talk through the runs on the board first. And those runs on the board would always be those small wins. It would always be the things which we've done the previous month to show that there's value being added in everything that we're doing. Then we'll get into the meat of the kind of like meat and stuff. But just showing you, even if it's a a, a small change on the website, or even if it's just a you know a, a change to the palette in the app or something like that. So when you say runs on the board, what what exactly do you mean by a run on the board? <laughs> so just like you know, if you look at like a, a cricket analogy, or you look at a, um, oh, a baseball analogy in yeah, terms okay. of right, okay, that's one run, that's that's a win, that's a tick. So that's... this is me trying to keep up with your sports analogies today, and only <laughs> just managed to scrape through. I'm so used to turning like my uh, my uh, my language into sports analogies that you know, I have to find a different um, reference point. <laughs> If you switch into motorsport, I'll be fine. I'll be able to yeah. keep up. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, anything with a ball in it, I'm not very good with. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, as you as you're going into this sort of global world, then that sounds like you've got a bit more of a challenge. So you've got a whole lot of white labels. Is that is there um, is there a migration problem that you've got to do there? Then have, have, have you is Costa is Costa grown by acquiring businesses in other countries, or is it grown by just launching new places? Not really, but a lot of our uh, our markets internationally are franchise partners and things like that. So it's it's been a case of we have been quite UK focused and we've supported the international teams in terms of best practice and cross-pollination of lessons learned and stuff like that. But we've also let them create these white labels, these independent mm. platforms and things like that. So I think now is the right time, given the fact that we have growth plans, the fact that these markets in some areas are greenfield. They don't have anything. Some markets have things which aren't as superior as what, what, what they could be. It's now a fantastic opportunity now that the UK is, you know, in a really great, great, great position um, to do that two-speed approach of continually invest in the UK in terms of the kind of um, technologies, but then look at a global platform and look at when those markets would be able to come on board to that global platform. So mm. you'd have your really adopters to start with because they're the best places to pilot it because they don't have anything and they don't have any of the kind of legacy challenges. Then migrating the others, once you've got that platform to a certain level of maturity and then eventually you're more mature, your key markets, then bringing them on board at a later date. But I think there's definite value in having the consistency. I look at the apps in some markets and they don't even have the same visual identity is what we, mm. we we give them because the white label can't get the color or the white label doesn't do the text and you make a lot of concessions on that so there's a bit of tidying up to do but i think it's super exciting i think it's you know a real good opportunity to be able to look at some of these markets and really learn from them understand what the challenges are and 
optimize and iterate the experience. In, in your progress so far, have you seen behavior be different in different countries? Have you had to adjust certain things? You know, one country has yeah. stuff in different ways. Yeah, definitely. So we've got a global website platform. We use um, we use a CMS and we've got a, a back end. So we originally built that for the UK and then we um, launched it in, in other markets across Europe. And then we started working at the in, in, with the Middle Eastern markets, and obviously, obviously, but the Middle Eastern markets, instead of it being a left to right read, it's mm -hmm. a right to left. So we had to optimize our UI, and we had to look at the the structure of the website and the way that it forms to be able to release something in an Arabic speaking country. We did that, and it worked really well. And we, it's just an example of us optimizing based on the market. So we'll build a global platform, but we'll allow the markets to locally flex it. Mm -hmm. So we'll give them the opportunity to be able to do do that. Same in Japan and China, huge amounts of content on, on, on the screens. You know, you look at a Japanese website and it's just boom, there's so much information. Mm. But that's that's that, that that's the consumer behavior. That's the mindset. They like to have everything up front. UK is very much more white space. Don't be afraid of it. You can pass things out a little bit more. You've got a bit more freedom to play around with imagery and hero banners and stuff like that. So it's horses, of course, it's a different levels of you know um website architecture and design that you need to implement for, for, for the for the markets and it's it doesn't stop there you know you look at apps china wechat don't really use apps and um, they've got wechat as a super app japan they use a social media platform called line which is a bit more um a, a bit more of a kind of what not as much as as, as a wechat app but it's um it's, it's what they use and they, they mm. obviously have websites as well but you just have to kind of adopt based on the market needs um, your digital portfolio. So you have to flex it a little bit for each country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you have to add in that local flex. Mm. But these these super apps like WeChat, I don't know if you've been to, I went to China a couple of years ago and we're using WeChat and it's just literally like mad. And for those who don't know what WeChat is, it's basically imagine Google, imagine Apple Pay, imagine every website and every app you've ever had basically inside one app and that's the only app that you need ever <laughs> it's mad it's like it's crazy a super app it is you mentioned um about finding uh early adopters and that being a good way to kind of build build off of that sounds like a very like you could make it into a cookie cutter process right because why wouldn't you go for the early doctors and all that? Have you found any techniques or, or any process that actually is useful for other people to adopt on actually finding those early adopters? Or, you know, to maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is specific for sort of Costa. Early adopters is, is different for the product, basically. But the question is like, yeah, have you have you found any process that actually really works in finding those early adopters? It definitely depends on what your product is and what you want to do. But for us, it's yeah. almost like if we're going into a market that doesn't have anything Costa, the first thing we need to start with is building the brand. So the window to the brand is the website. So building a website, building a good social media presence, being able to direct consumers to a website to get them excited about, about, about the product. You then got the thing around sampling and stuff like that. So how do you get consumers into the store and to taste how great your coffee is and why they should be drinking that versus the competitors how do you use digital to do that through vouchering through promotions and stuff like that how do you then build a relationship with that consumer by those transactions 
being turned into data and insight that you can then build profiles around the consumer to be able to create like sort of profiles so that you can then build a, a campaign management plan off the back of. So it's about looking at where they are in terms of that journey. But for Costa specifically, those greenfield markets or those markets that have low digital maturity are really interesting because you can go in and do those things. You can build a new website, etc. I think if you're building an e-commerce, it might be a little bit different because you'd have to probably have some kind of performance marketing department who's driving people to your website. And you'd have to build it around that more so than being a kind of, you know, brand awareness piece do you get um much influence from the parent company (laughs) (laughs) in all of this (laughs) so the motto is 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 connected not integrated so um but they're they're great so they're very much uh so so coca-cola are very much a kind of what do you need to go faster they're all about pace and they're excited mm. about what we're doing as a business they're more digital marketing so they don't really have these kind of loyalty programs or they don't have things that capture they capture consumer data but they don't have these like crm plans and mm. things like that it's very much a kind of if you look at coca-cola can it's like win 15 win something or yeah, win yeah. something right it's very yeah. much a, a kind of scan and put, scan and play kind of thing so they're excited by what we do and they're excited the fact that we have this plethora of data around consumers and the fact that we build relationships with them, the fact that it's a very retail and um, platform-based business versus them being very much FMCG. Sorry, FMCG? So the, like cans and bottles, fast-moving consumer goods, so things oh, which... Um, dropping the acronyms left, right and centre. <laughs> so, they, so, they, so, they, so they're very much a kind of volume-based business. And it's uh-huh. all about getting things into store and, and don't necessarily really have that direct relationship with the consumer because mm. they sell to a store who sells to a customer who then enjoys the product. I should have looked this up before our call, but is there even a Coca-Cola app? There are many. There are many. Oh, okay. But because you, you, as you were saying, I was thinking, well, they, they don't have a, a you know, they, every, everyone knows Coca-Cola. Why do Coca-Cola need to interact with anybody almost? Exactly. But like they're, they're engaging and they're really good through their promotional management mm. stuff and they're best in class at all that stuff. But they don't have that kind of thing that we have, which is direct relationship with a consumer or that mm. ability to be able to drive someone into a store and they recognize that and they support us in the things which we need to develop on and things which you know are opportunities for us in terms of pace and going faster and what you need, not necessarily come to us and go, we think you want to do this. It, it's very much a, we're autonomous in terms of our own destiny, but we're very much supported, which is really refreshing because it's going to be a concern for people when you get taken over by a huge company like Coca-Cola who have you know probably the best brains in the world because who doesn't want to work for the biggest brand in the world? Um, mm. But they're super supportive. Did they take over whilst you were there? Or were they, was, did Coca-Cola already yeah, over? Yeah, yeah. So we were Whitbread and then uh, we got taken over by Coca-Cola, yeah. Oh, of course, it was Whitbread, I remember. Yeah, so it was really, it was exciting. It was like, it was, it was a whirlwind. It was like nothing really stopped or changed for us, but it was just like, Things were happening behind the scenes. And then all of a sudden it was a, right, we need to start adopting some of the Coca-Cola processes and Mm. and things like that. And that's when you start to see some of that come in and, you know, 
they're brilliant. They, they they really do help us help us go fast. And Whitbread was was great because it was it was small enough, but it was also owning Premier Inn, and Premier Inn was almost like the firstborn in the, in yeah. the family. It was like Premier Inn is is the thing we need to protect. Mm. And Costa was always the kind of like, well, this is the safety net. This is what we'll use to generate the money, and then put it into the Premier Inn. But with Costa, with Coca Cola, they recognise. Costa and the growth plans are, are you know, are, are really, really um, exciting. So, I mean, let's let's go back a little bit because obviously you said you mentioned that you know you've now got design under you as well. But where did you actually, uh, where did you actually come from? So, to, how do we? What's the journey from you know leaving university to uh, to, to being a global product manager for a huge coffee brand? <laughs> God, everything in between. Um, well, so left uni. Did business and marketing. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, other than I had, um, still have. But um, my, my my future wife, who I met at university, was moving back home to Windsor, and she was like, "Well, I'm moving home," and I was like, "Well, kind of don't want to go back to Doncaster. Um, I'd rather be in Windsor and closer to London." So I took on an internship. Took on an unpaid internship with a, a startup company. It had two people in in, in the business. And the startup company you may have seen it is 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 called um, See It Now, and it's basically um, video recordings that a car dealership will do in order to show you a vehicle and potentially sell it to you, oh, or yeah. to show you the damage on your car or the work required in the service centre, so that you can see it, visualise it, go right. Okay, I believe this person because the trust is may not be there. Do the work. And we took that and it snowballed really and it grew from being 30 dealerships to all of the key dealerships and manufacturers in, in the UK and had some really good leadership and really grounded me in terms of you know that lean startup mentality and being able to make decisions on the fly, that kind of um, environment where everyone's in a rush and everything's like crazy and it's really, really good. And I was young and, 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 and I loved that. And then they decided to um, expand into the US and move me out to the US. So I did just under a year in the US with, with the product, helping set things up out, out there in Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. How, how, was, how was Boston? Awesome. Honestly, it's the best city in the world other than London. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm very patriotic. But um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Everyone is... Uh, sports fan, um, sport is massive. <laughs> That's out why there. you like so, it. <laughs> so, uh, so Chris, don't don't take any vacation to uh, to, uh, to to Boston. Hey, I like so. a lot of sport. It's just it, not with the balls involved. Yeah. You know. Well, they've all got balls. I'm not a balls fan. No, they've all got balls. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Um, we well, I came back um, and then took the gig at British Gas. Um, this was a very because um, I'd gone from being involved in like setting up products and the kind of service-led elements of, of, of a business. So when, a, when, when, when we acquire a customer, my job would then be to onboard them, make sure that the client relations are all there and stuff like that. Mm. So it's very much a kind of support center role. And I'd gone from heading up that to going into British Gas and almost taking a step back in a really big company, huge, with lots of process and lots of governance and lots of legal um, constraints. And I'd taken a role which was very much a 
product role and it was uh, called customer experience manager and it was very much a kind of the agile approach of we'll do some things which will be <laughs> agile and some things which will be really waterfall and and there's project teams and you can't feed anything into those project teams but british gas was awesome and i met some really really great people and that's really what made me fall in love with product properly mm. um because although british gas like i said at the start jokingly is that you know one of those brands which is you know not loved it has a huge reach and everybody needs to use that you know the energy provider and the big driver for british gas was to get people online because paperless billing is a lot cheaper than sending people a bill for the post every every month or every quarter also it costs a lot for a lot more than people think actually as well doesn't it yeah. paperless, like the actual paper billing it's paper billing is expensive <laughs> and also if you're not submitting a meter read often then we have to send out a person to come and meet your reader which again yeah. is, is costly if you're on estimated bills you're going to contact us because you think your bill's wrong, which causes causes a challenge in the contact mm. center. So massive drive in terms of getting people online. Was this around the Was this around the time they started to develop the the the, the hives from British Gas, isn't it? Around yeah, the it was, time, it was around the same time. So yeah, I mean that's where I fell in love with product because that's where I started to visualize because they had all the tools, they had the base. That's where I started to get that kind of well, I can see the improvements that I'm making on a screen and these are my targets and this is what you know I'm achieving in terms of the percentage of meter reads which are coming online versus ones that are coming through the IVR on the phone. Well, we talked about passion earlier on, didn't we? And obviously it's easy for you to find passion for coffee because it's coffee. But uh, unusual, well, not unusual. I think everybody finds a way to, to get a passion for even utility-based products like like British Gas, but was yeah. it was it it sounds like for you it was the data seeing the stuff yeah i don't think the product matters and not to say that you don't have to have the best products in the market because it helps right you do mm. have to have the best products in the market but for me i could sell picture frames and just looking at things around my house i could sell light <laughs> switches i could sell anything and the passion for me would be the end user receiving that and the output that you get from them mm enjoying it and being able to get that feedback and put it back into the start of that funnel to then invest even more to improve it so for me it's the scene of people using it so i wouldn't want to work for a company where you've got five users or you've got like a handful of people who are just aren't i want to work for a company that is actually making a difference or has a plan to be able to do that it's like you said earlier about the psychology of people and that's the thing that you you like seeing i suppose it's that um to use a generic uh product term it's that customer delight you know actually you know feeding off that and trying to make it better every time make them more delighted every time yeah i completely agree i think you're just trying to make people happy steve that's what it is i'm just i'm just that guy i'm just literally like you know know, i don't want i don't want an award i don't want an mbe but i am making i'm changing people's lives every day but obviously, so going back to that that career progression, you went from British Gas into Talk Talk. Was had you just developed a passion for utilities for that move? Or no? So my <laughs> my moves have always been through networking. So oh, really? you know, I've always just I've never I've never looked to go somewhere. I've always been approached by somebody who I've worked with before who's asked me to come and 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 and, and, and join and. I think for me, when I join a company, I've got to get a feel for the people. So I've got to get a feel for the leadership in terms of if I'm having an interview with you, I've got to make sure that there's A, a connection, and B, you're kind of of the same same mindset and you can be honest with me in terms of the challenges, 
but I want to know, you know, what you what you want to do about them and what the opportunities you're seeing as a result of those challenges versus somebody who you're just not going to connect with. Because I think that's the main thing, and that's probably why I've always gone to places and then I've gone somewhere with somebody. Because the the reason I've joined somewhere is being because of a connection. British Gas got approached by someone who worked at Talk Talk, went through it, and I've always had really strong leaders as well who, who, who I've worked with. So they've always been people which I really like. I'm inspired by and you know really like good mentors as well as bosses mm. so it's always been that's always been a big part for me because i know i'm not the rounded product pardon the pun um but <laughs> i like to surround myself by people which i see great behaviors and i see great you know um examples of how they you know do stuff that's really interesting i think it's important i i agree those relationships are important but in in terms of what you're talking about where you get the the passion for the product mm. that comes from the people and the, the place that you're working comes from the passion that of the people that already work there. So there's there's a whole lot of stuff in here around sort of psychology, people, and uh, just being a people person, I guess. Yeah, I buzz off of the kind of office environment and being around people. And I value, you know, um, we did a leadership course recently at Costa and, you know, one of the surveys is kind of like, it asked you lots of questions, but came out really strongly in terms of relationships and then being important mm. to me and, and things like that and values in people. And that's what I've always kind of, that's what I've always kind of liked. And I remember the little things. So, you know, someone like does something for you, they don't necessarily have to, those you know, versus the kind mm. of you know, big things which you think people are doing just because it's political because they think that they're going to get something from i like to see little bits in people and then i attach myself to those people because it's always good to have people who have got like a positive mindset and are generally happy to see you do well yeah i think i like wholeheartedly agree i think if we're talking about going back into the office you know i mean i can't i, I you know tell me if you if you think i'm wrong but i can't foresee us going back to the way we were it's going to be some sort of a hybrid of of some in some way you know how has it how has it affected you and what sort of practices have you been able to develop to cope for not being able to see people on a day a face-to-face -face on a daily basis <laughs> yeah i'm used to it now but i'll admit at the start um it was quite challenging so obviously we had store closures we had to do announcements on the website we had to mm. send out updates to customers and stuff like that so it was really challenging at the start to get the work-life balance right. And obviously with kids, with having a wife that works as well and only being allowed out of the house for an hour a day doesn't help. <laughs> so you've got to, I think for me, it was just about creating those boundaries. So the thing I struggled with really at the start was switching off and being able to just put my laptop down. I've always had a really strict rule in my life, which is, my work's my work and my home's my home. So if I need to stay late at the office, I'll stay late at the office to finish my work, but I don't want to go home and then have to pick my laptop up because that's the time I spend with the kids. That's the time I spend watching Netflix with, with my wife. Obviously, weekends and things like that are a little bit different, but you know, I really value the time at home and had a strong distinction between work and home. But when you're at home all the time, your job is ultimately your life and you just it just takes over. And before you know it, it's 11 o'clock at night and you're still with your laptop. So... For me, it was just about creating those boundaries and being able to just actually switch off. Obviously, miss the, the, the office environment with the people, but you're on a Teams every day. You're able to talk to people. I think one thing that this pandemic has taught us is that 
when people work from home, not everybody's just sat there watching TV, doing that with their mouse. And so, you know, everyone is working and people are probably more efficient and probably more productive when they do work from home. I think what we'll see from businesses is them giving people more of the choice. So I think we won't go back to a five day a week in the office. I think it'll probably be a two day rolling or something like that. And when you feel comfortable, I've said to my guys in my team, if you don't feel comfortable coming to the office, you don't have to come into the office. If you want to come into the office because you've got meetings, come into the office because you've got meetings. But if you don't want to come into the office and just check your emails, there's no point. Like, what's the point in doing a two-hour commute if there's no value in you doing in, in being in the office? Well, I think that's the, that's the thing, especially within London, isn't it? The the commutes are a nightmare because you know it is two two hours out of your day. It's an hour to get anywhere in London. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 crazy, and you forget how frustrated you were at the train station platform at 7.30 in the morning. And for me, it was like the train into London. It was like, sorry, you can't get on this train because it's too full. And you're like, well, all right then. So I have to wait another 15 minutes for the next train. And then you barge your way to the front and someone's shouting, move down. You're like, oh, so how can I move down? <laughs> and, you know, and then you've got the delays and stuff. So I think those are the things that you don't miss. But um, definitely being in with people, I think, is... It has some value. We might not need that full capacity that we're going to get from Crossrail, hey? <laughs> I know, I know, right? It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm right on that. So, uh, you know, I'll oh, be right. straight into it. Yeah. So I'll be. I'm, so you'll have a seat at least. I'll have a seat, yeah, but I can't tell you how how comfortable I'll be. Yeah, but <laughs> I'll definitely have a seat. Probably someone <laughs> on my lap. COVID restrictions pending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th- I'm wondering whether it's going to change so that we'll end up with like a day of meetings you know like will meetings start to be organized into a you know a single day or something along those lines or so we're looking at trying to coordinate as 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 a leadership team within the digital team we're looking at trying to coordinate our time so that we can be in with the peers and we can be in with our team members to do things like one-to-ones on like a bi-weekly or monthly basis just to you know catch up and because i think the thing you miss from being in the office is just the corridor conversations or the chance meeting yeah. you have with someone where it's like, well, I didn't know that. Now I know it. And now I can take that on board. Everything's a meeting. So if you want to pick up with someone, something for 15 minutes, put a 15 minutes teams meeting. It's like, well, originally I just go across the office and say, Hey, what do you think of this? Oh, that was my, that was my number one skill uh, was, was just walking up to people. <laughs> As you mentioned before about me sitting on an island, generally I've generally I've not had an actual desk. I will generally just hover somewhere because that mean that way I can get to speak to more people. I think it, it it really helps with just building those relationships. I completely agree. Well, I mean it's been uh, it's been good to catch up with you as well because we haven't really uh, spoken in probably I don't know three years, maybe four years. Yeah. Actually, it was four years. The last time I saw you was. Um... Was it the Fable? Is it called the Fable? Was it called the Fable? We're in, the Fable? Talk, talk, we're talk, talk. Oh, the uh, the pub around the corner. Yeah, so that was my leaving drinks. I think that's the last time... Uh, your leaving drinks, That wow. we spoke, yeah, so that's good, nearly four years ago. Well, this is the advantage of having a podcast, you see, is you get to I catch know. up with people. I know, it's awesome. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you again for for uh, for being on the show, Steve. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again, and uh, we should make sure we we uh, we catch up in another four years, or potentially potentially <laughs> even sooner. <laughs> I mean, there might be another for, there might be another um, media format there soon, so we can we can do that. Maybe maybe hologram podcast. All right. Yeah. That. Yeah. That deal. We'll do that. We'll do that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for joining. Speak to you again soon.
cheers both cheers see you later bye